0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
2: Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? The microphone is clipped on. You should do a mic check too, possibly. Hello. Brilliant. (laughs) It's working. Um, Thanks thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. And thanks all of you for coming. Um, Yes. So uh, Lars is going to read in a moment and um, then I'll ask him some questions and then you can ask him some questions and then he'll sign books that you will want to buy, I'm sure. Um, before he starts reading, I thought perhaps I'd tell him how I came across his work and why I like it so much. Um, maybe like many of you, I first read Lars Ayers' fiction in the context of his blog that he used to write for quite a while. Mm. Um this was, I suppose, about 10 years ago. And that blog soon became um, his first book, Spurious, which was published in 2011, um, which was then became part of a trilogy, the other two, of Exodus and, and Dogma, which you can also buy today. And they were these kind of bleak, Beckettian comedies, um, structured around a conversation between two characters, Lars and W, who went to conferences and got drunk and argued with each other. And they were also about philosophy, um, or really about what it means to sort of be a philosopher as much as they were about philosophy. They weren't sort of philosophical texts. And I found this very appealing as a pretentious um, PhD student and still do. Um, And it's it's a theme um, that you continue to explore in your other books, that of philosophy, not least because you were a philosopher once and possibly still are. Do you still identify as a philosopher?
0: Well, I mean, the word philosopher is an honorific. If someone called you a philosopher and says, you know, you're a philosopher... That might be something you, you can accept, and you, you, you bow your head and you say, thank you very much for, the, for that compliment. So to be called a philosopher is something which is, a, which is an honorary thing. It's a wonderful thing. I don't think you can call yourself a philosopher, you know? Um, this this, this would be presumptuous. There's so something which other people uh, might call you, and I would never present myself as a philosopher. In my humble way, I was an academic philosopher. Now, an academic philosopher is certainly not necessarily a philosopher, You know, you might work on the history of philosophy. You might teach students about clever things philosophers have said. But it doesn't mean that you yourself are a philosopher. So that, for me, the idea of being a philosopher is a sacred thing. Because what philosophy uh, and being a philosopher meant used to mean for the ancient Greeks, the ancient Indians, the ancient Chinese, is not just teaching a particular doctrine, but it's embodying that doctrine. It's living out what you actually think. And that is something which is enormously difficult. Not only have um, have you got to work out what you think, you have to somehow embody that. You have to live it. You have to concretise it in, in this original sense of, of the ethical, of ethics, of an ethos. So you dwell as a philosopher, you live as a philosopher, you think as a philosopher, and you act ethically, politically, in every way as a philosopher. So for me then, being a philosopher is something awe-inspiring, I would certainly never call myself that. I would love to be that, but unfortunately I know, and I've written books about this, I know that I fall very far short of that.
2: Well, we can be the judges of that then. If it isn't honorific, it's one that we can choose to apply. As indeed many of the characters in your book, books, I should say, all of your books, feature people who enter those um fictional worlds and are given the honorific and become kind of, um, important, um, figures for the mm. people around them, especially in the last, in your last two novels, um, Wittgenstein Jr., which was published maybe, when was it published? Four, four years ago? Five, two, yeah, 20, 2014. Like that, which is mm. about a group of Cambridge undergrads who, um, are, are a sort of enigmatic new Don is, um, thrown into their midst and, and teaches them very badly. I suppose mm. it's fair to say philosophy, but also teach them a way to live and they they become kind of obsessed with him and, and his life. And it's, and he, and then they begin to call him Wittgenstein Jr. It's not a, it's not a biographical novel or rather it's not a, um, a kind of novelization of Wittgenstein's life, but he is given this honorific by the characters around him. And a similar thing happens in Nietzsche and the Burbs, which is the book we're here to talk about today, which is about a group of sixth form students who are, um, just before their exams, or ten weeks before their exams, a new student enters the school who has come from a private school. They're, they're in a kind of bog-standard comp, and he's similarly mysterious and enigmatic and begins to um, and will fascinate them, I suppose. Um, what's, I, maybe before I ask the question, you'd like to give a reading from Nietzsche mm. and the Burbs and give us a sense of...
0: Yeah, I'll give you a sense of the novel, I'll give you a flavour of the novel. And The first section I'll read um, is about these six formers, and they're in class... And they're being taught about um, well-being. Well-being class. Mr. Merriweather, teen whisperer, beaming at us all. Beam bags. Working in groups on our happiness worksheet. Class discussion. What is happiness? How can we increase it? Is the capacity for happiness simply a trait? Or can it be developed... Misty Merriweather, asking each group for its thoughts. Mr. Merriweather, summarizing our thoughts on the board. Happiness, path or goal? The cultivation of happiness, is it possible? Mr. Merriweather, extemporizing on happiness inducing habits, on joy enhancement and mood induction techniques, on working on yourself, on governing the soul. Mr Merriweather, speaking of the cultivation of good habits, of altruistic habits, of civilising the affects. More group discussion. Are unhappy people neurotics? Should we become happier for the sake of others and not just ourselves? Mr Merriweather, summarising thoughts once more. The optimism of the happy. The selflessness of the happy? Mr. Merriweather posing a question. What is optimism? Inanity, Paula says. Insanity, Art says. Stupidity, I say. Blindness to the facts, Merv says. Mr. Merriweather mouthing, no. (laughs) Anyone else? Silence. Mr. Merriweather... ...assisted by his PowerPoint display. The optimist understands troubles as transient, controllable and specific to situations. Mr Merriweather, on the virtuous circle of optimism. On happiness, leading to more optimism, leading to more happiness. Mr Merriweather, on the promise of happiness. On making the future a promise... Another virtuous circle. Mr. Merriweather, quite the philosopher. Are you happy, sir? Paula asks. I'm very happy, Mr. Merriweather says. How about Mrs. Merriweather? Is she happy? Art asks. I hope Mrs. Merriweather is very happy, Mr. Merriweather says. Are animals happy, Mr. Merriweather? Merv asks. In the case of higher order animals... Probably yes. Most of the time, Mr. Merriweather says. Which is happier, do you think, sir? A koala bear or a gorilla? I ask. <laughs> Happiness varies enormously from case to case, Mr. Merriweather says. When were you happiest, sir? Art asks. I've never been happier, Mr. Merriweather says. What's so great about being happy, sir? Paula asks. I mean, why is it so important to be happy? Don't you think there are more worthwhile things to worry about, sir? Art asks. Why should we be so happy, sir, when so many people are miserable? Paula asks. These are good questions, Mr Merriweather says. But we can't make ourselves miserable just because there's suffering in the world. Happy people are oblivious, sir, Paula says. Happy people don't think. They want to keep us happy... So we don't think, Art says. Who? Who wants to keep us happy? Mr Merriweather asks. The system, sir, Art says. What system? There is no system, Mr Merriweather says. What about the central banks and corporate friends system, sir? Art asks. And the Beltway Media and Financial Services system, Paula says. The school, university, business system, sir. What about that, I ask? And there's the prison industrial system, sir, Art says. And the military security complex, sir, Paula says. And don't forget the Westminster broadcasting big accountancy firm revolving door, sir, I say. What about the Babylon system, sir, Art asks. What about nihilism, sir, Paula asks. Mr Merriweather," shaking his head.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. So Mr Mr. Merriweather is an embodiment of of what? Of bad philosophy of of self-help or of the education as it currently is conceived in.
0: The idea that philosophy philosophizing would be devoted towards pointing towards individual happiness is, I think, grotesque. (laughs) Individual happiness for the philosopher um, is, is not significant compared to larger questions about how we live, how we should live. Um, the price we pay for being happy, the price others pay for being happy, the exploitation that is required for us to be happy and settled and, you know, um, having a nice time domestically. So I think philosophy is interested in, in, in larger questions than individual happiness. And to that extent, Mr. Merriweather would embody, for me, the idea of making ethics an individual consolation. For me, ethics is, is more than that.
2: So the nihilism of the which, which um, the characters who you hear talking to Mister Meriwether there, and are the central kind of chorus of this novel, mm-hmm. who take Nietzsche, this 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 new schoolboy, on as their sort of mascot and leader, really, is, is 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 taken more seriously than perhaps I took from the novel. I I wondered to what degree you were gently showing these teenagers to be contrarian adolescence and how much you think that their dissent and their rebellion is valuable and important on its own terms. Because they live these very comfortable lives. I mean, we haven't spoken yeah. about the setting yet, but they live in suburbia in Wokingham. It's a, it's a novel that's set in a, in a very real place. And they're constantly yeah. bemoaning this fact that their lives are too, you know, too easy to create art. Actually, they all want to be musicians. They form a band and they have nothing to rebel against, they find. And yeah. so one of the things that they one, one of the things they find so exciting about Nietzsche is that he's had a brush with insanity, but also that he seems mm. to embody a nihilism that they find attractive. But you, it sounds to me like you, 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 you value that of, in them.
0: Well, in all my work, I send up intellectual life. I have some fun at the expense of intellectual life. But on the other hand, I take intellectual life extremely seriously. You know, it impresses me. And what impresses me is commitment. And this is the commitment we see today in youth movements, in, in movements led by youth, um, movements such as Extinction Rebellion, and other interesting movements that are occurring, springing up across the world. So I find these movements inspiring. Recently, I was at a, a, at a school strike, and I was there with my oldest son and, and my wife, and I, unfortunately I had to leave a little early. But what I was told when I, when I came home was that there was a, a, teenage, a teenage boy there, 15 years old, and he was speaking about the climate crisis. And he was speaking with such um, articulacy but most of all with such passion that he was trembling with emotion. I thought that was a wonderful thing, that the young can teach us how to tremble with emotion when we're confronted with issues like the climate crisis and financial crisis. So to that extent, I want to celebrate um, the young. I want to celebrate the capacity for youth um, not to settle with the world in which we currently live. It's also fun to be had at the expense of teenagers, (laughs) <laughs> you know, the whole of popular culture has fun at the expense of, of teenagers. But for me, the important thing is not to patronise the teen. Now, teenagers can connect with, um, with issues in a way which is passionate, which is emotional, which is engaged, and should inspire us, those of us who are, who are used to the world, who are older.
2: Do you think there's something particularly attractive about Nietzsche, the real Nietzsche, that is, rather than your Nietzsche, to
0: adolescents? Certainly, you know, the, the Nietzsche as a philosopher this wonderful philosopher Mm. born in 1844, died in 1900, a philosopher who lived in a context way different different from ours. Nietzsche was someone who has always been a seductive voice for the young. And Nietzsche's always been able to seduce the young because his writing is incredibly passionate, Mm. it's emotional, it's engaging. And what we who have taught academic philosophy will always tell our students, what we will tell our students in an academic setting is, Don't be swept away by this. Don't don't be carried away by Nietzsche's thought. Hold back. Hold yourself back from this thought. It's too seductive in a sense. Hold yourself back. Ask yourself about the questions that he's raising. Ask yourself about these themes, issues such as nihilism or the death of God or the problem about pity. Ask yourself about these themes in, in a more detached manner. Be careful. Nietzsche is a seducer. So that's what we might say in an academic setting. But then, in a non-academic setting, outside the academy, Nietzsche is, I think, the best-selling philosopher in the world, mm. the most read philosopher in the world. Um, and I'm not talking just to hear about the Western world. I'm talking about in China. I'm talking about it in Japan. He's a huge figure there as well, and his books sell enormous amounts of copies. From my perspective, Nietzsche is a dangerous thinker because of that seductiveness. But on the other hand, I recognise that for the young, he is a blazon of passion. And he can point the way to a passionate engagement with the world.
2: He's also quite a funny writer, or at least I'm not sure, I'm never sure, and I'm no philosopher, let alone a Nietzschean, so I'm not, I'm not sure how intentional it is, but, the, you know, the chapter title in *E.K. Homo, or mm. when, it, you know, there the are things like, why I am such a brilliant writer, or why, why, I, why there's no one as good, you know, you, you know them probably mm. much better than I do. But there's, is that unintentional comedy, or is that bombast part of his shtick, would you Well,
0: say? he's a very, very funny writer. Mm. He's many, many things. Nietzsche's a whole world of different affects. The point is for Nietzsche is to rouse us through his philosophical writing. His work can be extremely funny, extremely moving. It can be dripping with a pathos that we might find, you know, we might find rather suspicious. Some of it is horrifying. Some of it is, 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 is dark. It's misogynistic. It's, um, it's racist, some of it. So this is a text is, is rich, it's fascinating, it's horrifying, all these things. And it's also humorous.
2: And what does humour do in your work? Because all of your books are very funny. You'll have got a sense of that from the reading if you don't know them. But um, they have this commitment to a kind of um, verbal sparring that's often very funny, yeah. but also a deadpan um, you know, listing quality where you, you kind of over-egg concepts or exhaust concepts so that they become absurd and, and fun. I mean it's, uh, yeah, to, to dissect a joke is to kill it perhaps but I wondered where you view comedy operating mm. and, and why it's important to you.
0: It's nice to be thought of as a, as a comic writer and it's always nice <laughs> to hear that people um, laugh at my, at my work and it's very much intended in that way but for me the figure of the philosopher is one which I think in our times is reborn as a comic figure a comic figure, because I think to be a philosopher in that sense in which we find in the ancient Greeks, the ancient Indians, the ancient Chinese, to be a philosopher in that sense becomes something rather ridiculous in the world in which we live. To be a philosopher in that sense, I think you become something akin to a holy fool in Dostoevsky. You know, the idea of the holy fool, uh, which we get from in Russian Orthodox Christianity. The idea that you're a fool for Christ, you're a fool for your ideas, you will live out your commitments in a manner which will appear absurd to the world. I think likewise, philosophers who live in that ancient sense of philosophy will appear ridiculous to the world. There's something foolish about the philosopher, there's something comic about the philosopher. So for me, part of um, this idea of of attempting to embody philosophy is that you become a laughing (laughs) stock. So in my work, certainly um, there's a lot of fooling around, um, a lot of laughter, I hope anyway for, the, for readers, there's a great deal of humour. These are fundamentally humorous books, they're comic books, but that comedy I think reflects what the philosopher has become in our world, and that comedy, now, and this is going to be a bit of a convoluted statement, that comedy is something which not only is a matter of us laughing at the philosophers, but the idea that that comedy laughs at us as well, for whom philosophy has become comic
2: And yet you've written, you know, you've, you've, you've kind of documented or celebrated or perhaps lamented this changing status of the Mm. philosopher as a figure in, in fiction. And your own career is, is, is quite unusual in that regard. You mentioned Dostoevsky, Mm. um, a moment ago. And he was someone I was thinking of when, when I was, I was trying to sort of compile a list of philosophers who, who write fiction or who write novels or, um, philosophical novelists. And he's obviously kind of one of the, First names you might reach for, but up until fairly recently, lots of philosophers did write fiction. Mm. Um, Iris Murdoch would be a very prominent figure from the 20th century, and even Nietzsche wrote fiction of mm? one kind of sure. if you couldn 't call them novels or not. Um, I suppose I wanted to ask you two questions about that one is to is to ask why philosophers no longer write novels apart from you mm. um, and the second which is connected is to ask what fiction can do that you found straight philosophy couldn 't because as well as these novels you 've written two. Very tent, dense and difficult academic books about Blanchot and other subjects mm. um, so yeah those what has fiction allowed you to do that that, that 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 kind of writing wasn't allowing you to do
0: yeah it's interesting you know philosophy in, in, in the West has often been linked very strongly to fiction if so we think of plato plato's philosophical works are you know, they're, they're works of fiction and, and presented. I mean, they're not presented as fiction in that, in that strong sense, but they're, they're presented as takes on, on a historical situation, on the historical um, Socrates. So if you read Plato's works, these works are, um, are, are really fictional works. They're based on Socrates, but Plato plays around with the life of the, of the historical Socrates. He puts things into Socrates' mouth that probably weren't there in the historical Socrates. So really, from, from, from um, ancient Greek philosophy onwards, fiction has been important in philosophy. And what's important there, I think, is the idea of testing out ideas, of embodying those ideas in characters, in their lives, in situations, of embodying those ideas, and then crashing them up against other ideas. For me, you know, we we find this in Plato, we find it in Kierkegaard's work, we find it especially in Dostoevsky. So in a book like, for example, The Idiot, Dostoevsky asks himself, well, what if someone with a a Christ-like purity, a Christ-like innocence, was in our world today? This, of course, is the, is the Russia of the, of the 1860s. Why something like that were to appear in the world today? What would happen? What's the result of that? Now, we know Dostoevsky to be a, a devout man. We know that, that he's someone who, who's very much part of the, of the Russian Orthodox Church. And for him, you know, um, Christ is, is, a, is a real figure. Jesus Christ is someone very important to Dostoevsky. What's interesting in Dostoevsky's work is, notwithstanding that, his character, the idiot, who's supposed to embody this Christ-like innocence, is someone who causes mayhem in his immediate context. Um, the idiot is someone who can never get things to work um, in, in his world. He can never get, make things happen properly and smoothly. He's always misunderstood. Calamity is always around the corner. So what you find Dostoevsky doing there is testing, testing this idea of being innocent, this idea of being someone who is not practically engaged with the world. And the idiot, in that sense, is not a character who is wholly admirable. He is genuinely foolish, genuinely, I don't know what what, what, what word to use here. He's someone who is a pathetic figure in so many ways. That's, I think, is what we can do in in fiction, is to dramatise these kinds of ideas, ideas of innocence, ideas of messianism. We can dramatise these and show how they work when they're pushed up against the world in which we live, the real world, the complex world.
2: So is that the difference? Because obviously lots of contemporary, certainly in the analytical tradition, the idea of um, what philosophical work looks like often has fictional elements, even if they're very naive. I'm thinking mm. here of, sort of the thought experiment yeah. as, a, as a mode mm. of argument that, that some of the sort of most famous papers in the analytical tradition from the 20th century are set up as quite crude Speculative, you know, stories about mm. a state of affairs, and the argument is that by reading them and thinking about them, considering them, um, an argument that has applications to wider general principles can be derived. But that's mm. that's not what you think Dostoevsky does, or yes. what your novels do. So,
0: in this tradition, what is a thought experiment? In th- thought experiments in philosophy, are rather similar to thought to experiments in science. And the idea is, in, in science, in the laboratory, if you're conducting an experiment. You isolate out certain elements that you want to um, see interaction with one another. And what you're doing in in those experiments is abstracting from the real and complex world in which we live. So if you're a scientist in the laboratory, as I understand it, you are isolating certain things, um, certain phenomena, that you want to see interact, interplay in some way, and see what happens. In philosophy, you're doing something quite similar. You're abstracting from the the complex, rich, everyday world in which we live. But the problem is, in that abstraction, you lose that complexity. So my, my, my question is, and there aren't many people here who can enlighten me about this, my question is about the um, scope, the relevance of these thought experiments in philosophy. Because my worry is, what we do is, we, by conducting these experiments, we leave, we, we, we leave behind the rich, lived world that we inhabit. And that makes these thought experiments hopelessly abstract.
2: So in a sense, you're drifting towards fiction, has enabled you to, to write what you think of as more authentic philosophy?
0: You know, I couldn't call myself, myself <laughs> no, 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 a, no, no, a philosopher. You can say the work the is philosophical. Philosopher. Okay. I don't know about <laughs> any of these things. What they allow me to dramatise is the idea of the philosopher as buffoon, as a comic figure. So the idea of a philosopher as someone who's foolish, a holy idiot, someone out of place, out of sync. Uh, a philosopher is someone who can't have a philosophy career in, an, in, a, in, a, in a university, this is anathema to, to, a, to a real philosopher, or the philosophers of my novel. So this uh, of my novels. So the idea then is to present um, philosophy as something outside the university, outside the normal categories in which we, we 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 think of philosophical work as being done. Philosophy becomes a kind of idiocy, and it's a vocation of idiocy, where you're called into an almost deliberate stupidity in the face of what my characters would would, would consider to be the stupidities of the world.
2: Thank you. That's really much clearer um, than I made it. Um, (laughs) Do you have another passage you would like to read?
0: I'm going to read another passage. And this passage (laughs) is something which overlaps with your interests, John. John has has written a book about cycling. And uh, it's it's a wonderful book, actually. I I read it quite recently. Um, What's the title again, John? I've forgotten it. It's called Cyclogereography. But it's it's, it's very much the
2: kind of book... One of the pretentious young teenagers within your novel would have written, or would have, yeah. Well, given up on as too pretentious, in think. my
0: novel, my cy- my characters cycle around a great deal, and perhaps this passage will explain both my characters, <coughs> my teenage characters in their school, and their relationship to the philosopher who joined them, to Nietzsche, who's transferred in from a, from a fee-paying school after a couple of years out because he went mad. So this 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 passage here dramatizes the relationship between my teenagers. Um, at the sixth form in Wokingham, and Nietzsche, who transferred in from a, from a fee-paying school. Cycling home. Freewheeling downhill. Did you see Nietzsche queuing up for the school bus, I ask? We saw him. Hundreds of kids milling about on the tarmac, bags over their shoulders. Hundreds of them calling, bellowing, shouting to one another. And Nietzsche among them, queuing to get on the school bus. Hundreds of lower school brats, barely civilised, and Nietzsche among them, about to board a bus to carry him wherever. The indignity, the ignominy, the overcrowding, the fight for seats. What a vision! Nietzsche unable to find a seat downstairs as screaming children scrawl obscenities on the steamed-up glass. Nietzsche sitting on the edge of a seat upstairs with the bus stuck in traffic, having to bear the chatter of the screaming children. Nietzsche with the bus at dead halt for half an hour, his head full of the inanities of the screaming children. Nietzsche being barrowed out from the back um, seats, eat shit and die, posh boy. The desire to protect Nietzsche, to look after him, but why? Because he's the new boy? No, because he's different, because he's cleverer than us, better than us. Is that it? It's because he's innocent. I say, he's better than this world. Crap. It's just mystique, Paula says. We're in awe of him, because we're from generations of bowers and scrapers. Well, we can't let him travel home with the lower school brats, Art says. He needs to get on a bike. He can cycle home with us. The vision of Nietzsche on a bike. (laughs) Nietzsche cycling like a pro. Nietzsche, one of us, Free on the open road, Nietzsche cycling through the estates, through the scraps of last countryside, Nietzsche slowing as he crests the hill on Barkham Street, Nietzsche plunging into the Molly Miller estate, Nietzsche freewheeling through the Molly Miller estate, gladness swelling in his breast. The vision of Nietzsche, freer now. Nietzsche thinking as he cycles. Nietzsche full of exhilarated thoughts, laughing thoughts, puffed-out thoughts. The vision of Nietzsche, a man of the bike, at one with the bike. Nietzsche with the right clips for his pedals and the lightest of helmets on his head. Nietzsche knowing the gladness of cycling. The happiness of cycling, his lungs full of fresh air, his vessels full of fresh blood, muscles stretched in his thighs, his calves, his forearms, wind in his hair. What heed will he pay to the occasional fly in his throat? (laughs) None. To the occasional fly in his eye? Likewise, none. The vision of Nietzsche cycling, looking over the last vistas, seeing the last fields, the last ponds, the last unconverted barns. Nietzsche cycling along the last unmade roads by the golf course. Nietzsche weaving his bike through traffic, on and off the pavement. Nietzsche following footpaths, cut-throughs like us. Nietzsche, with all the cunning of a cyclist, the freedom of the cyclist.
2: Thank you very much. I think you elevated cycling to its rightful heroic position. (laughs) um, It is the most philosophical of activities. I I was thinking as you read that message. You say, you claim not to have ridden a bike for... Many years? Well, I mean... Not even for research?
0: Not even for research, <laughs> my God. No, I walk a great deal. I mean, walking is very philosophical. I'm, I'm, I'm a walker in life. But a bike is a cumbersome thing. You know, a bike is kind of a dirty thing, at least my bike was. So a bike propped up in the hallway becomes objectionable. It becomes, you know, too worldly. It drags in dirt. So I became, <laughs> I became, a, I became a walker.
2: I obviously disagree completely.
0: <laughs> you have a very you clean, must clean, you
2: have a clean <laughs> bike. I just tolerate the dirt, I think. I also think that, I mean, there's that wonderful, you must know Flann O'Brien's third policeman, mm. that description of a, a person and a, a bicycle mm. becoming one through the exchange, molecule theory, he calls it. Absolutely. The exchange of atoms between bicycle <laughs> and person. So these bikes start, um, people start sleeping propped up in their hallways yeah. because, you know, one one elbow <laughs> against the wall because they become 90% bike or whatever. And the bikes start creeping into the larder, stealing food and stuff. Mm. Um, but the bike in this novel becomes a, a kind of means of exploration very much in the cyclogeographic tradition because mm. Nietzsche himself takes on this research project that he identifies as the problem of the suburbs. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, both about the setting of this book, which is very specific, more so, I think, than, certainly than the trilogy, but mm. I guess um, Cambridge becomes a kind of symbolic place as much as a real place. But this is very much set in in a mappable world, in a, in a place mm. you know from your own youth in Wokingham. Yes. Yeah. And the question of suburbia and what it means to these teenagers and what they imagine it to be is kind of central to their struggle, I guess. Mm. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the setting and the way in which the bike provides a way through that setting.
0: Yeah, so the, the novel is set in in a, in a town which is 35 miles away. It's 35 miles to the west of, of London, where we are now. And it's uh, largely suburban. Now, working in town centre is very pretty. You have the town hall, and the streets in the town centre you know, lead towards the town hall. The town hall has lovely arches. It's got um, um, beautifully arched windows, patterned brick, very nice thing. In the town centre, you have old cottages. You know, these, these are... Old cottage, hundreds and hundreds of years old, with the old overhangs, with roof tiles. You have the terrace with a nice bank of grass. It's a very pretty place, but, you know, Wokingham is an island in a suburban sea. And Wokingham as a town no longer exists if we understand a town as something which has limits. So Wokingham as a town, if you know that part of the world, has blended in with surrounding towns, and when we visit Wokingham now, you know, it's, it's always distressing to see that Wokingham and Bracknell are essentially merging. That green <laughs> space between to them. Distressing to, <laughs> to me as, as a former Wokinghamite. So the, the, the gap between the towns is merging. And what we find the suburbs becoming, these housing states that sprawl all over the southeast, the suburbs are becoming exponential. They're becoming interminable. They lack a term. They lack a limit. The suburbs are becoming absolute. And every last bit of countryside is disappearing in the interest of 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 increasing this suburban sprawl. The suburbs about which I write are, are prosperous suburbs. These are suburbs where the teenagers in my novel have prosperous lives. They have time for leisure, time to think. One of the things they think about is the condition of other people in the world, people who live outside of the suburbs, people who live outside of the West. And they ask themselves about the cost of the suburbs and what the suburbs mean in terms of exploitation of other people in the world. And they also ask themselves about how others live in the world outside the suburbs. How do people live in Bhutan, for example? You know, in Bhutan with a with this with this wonderful high and measure of of gross national happiness. So my characters find woking to be somewhere which makes them miserable, which makes them unhappy, which makes them anxious, which makes them bored, which understimulates them. To that extent, I think the suburbs are very familiar. Uh, they're very familiar to all of us as uh, mainstays of fiction, of music. The suburbs um, are, are that place from which we want to get away. We want to leave. We want to leave the suburbs behind. Cycling is a way of leaving the suburbs within the suburbs, if I can put it like that. It's a way of weaving around the perpetual traffic. It's a way of exploring new routes that you can take on your bike um, rather than routes directed by the road on a bike you are relatively unchanneled compared to a road so what my characters are doing when they're cycling is escaping the suburbs in the suburbs
2: and and i mean most of them want to escape um i mean all of them arguably but nietzsche himself becomes kind of fascinated by this new place that he finds himself in the implication is that he's moved both schools but also perhaps he's lived somewhere more old villagey or posher Mm. in some sense and now he's exposed to the the mass suburbification around Wokingham he he Mm. discovers this becomes a sort of compelling research project Mm. for him and you spoke a moment ago about the way in which the suburbs have been represented in fiction in 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 English literature particularly Mm. um or British literature rather than I suppose in American suburban tradition there's there's different connotations and associations Mm. um and I'm I don't know how I mean what what kind of novels do you have in mind when you talk about a, a British imaginary of the suburb? I
0: never read contemporary novels, so I have no idea. <laughs> I just read Dostoevsky. I read Plato. and I read Kierkegaard. So I, I don't know about contemporary novels. Contemporary so films. don't have any models.
2: Yeah, yeah. Contemporary right, films,
0: yeah. I don't know, American I, mean, music, I guess there's Metroland, exactly.
2: isn't there? There's, there's this I, never, I, don't, I don't know. Barnes I'm, I'm
0: lost in contemporary fiction. I, I don't, I don't but really what mean.
2: about music, which is really at the core yeah, of this novel? Music. Because, now you're talking. Well, music <laughs> in, in, you know, the great um, music of the 20th century in, in English rock and pop, hmm. really all of it emerged from the
0: suburbs. I yeah, that's right. That that's, that's, it's, 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 it's an interesting thesis. If we read something like Simon Reynolds, his account of new wave music, that music which we find in the wake of uh, punk music, from, say, 79 to 83. If we read Simon Reynolds, you'll see that you know, this music emerges from the provinces, it emerges from outside of London, it often emerges from former industrial towns. But in the south, in particular, it emerges, it emerges from the suburbs. And the idea that you're moving away from the suburbs, you're leaving the suburbs, there's an impetus that carries, it through, carries through from your desire to leave into the music itself, giving an urgency and a passion. So that's certainly something which I had in mind in writing this fiction. And of course, in the novel, um, the characters form a band. They actually form a band, which is another way of escaping the suburbs within the suburbs.
2: But even that is an unsuccessful, pro- well, arguably, mm. in the sense that they're so conscious of this history of not just es- of, of the suburbs of stifling place, but also of these attempts to escape through music that it renders them almost incapable of making it. I mean, they're so conscious of the mm. tradition; they've got they got this kind of deep anxiety of influence and art. Who's the big? He can't. So we can't play any instrument. But he's he's the sort of um, director general of the band and the mm. conceptual. Um, stock taker has these grand visions of what they, they must make a music that sounds like music after music and so on. But it's mm. also a book that's kind of haunted. You mentioned Simon Reynolds and, mm. and his big thing about retromania, the idea that we live in a, in a historical period where we're so familiar with the recent past that we can access the music of our childhoods, but also mm. our parents' childhoods instantly through YouTube, that you can dwell in a perpetual past. That seems to be something that haunts these teenagers true too, quite acutely. And I wondered if that's something you feel sad about, that there's something Mm. that their lives, their attempts to escape the suburbs, and even if they're eventually to return to them, aren't just stymied by, or in fact, aren't at all stymied by their lack of opportunity. It's just that there's no place to escape from because the present, the past, Mm. all the other previous modes of escape are there um, to kind of poking their fingers and laughing at them.
0: Initially, at least, for my characters, and they formed the band... They do feel this pressure, the pressure to create something new. And what I exploit for comic effect is that they're always playing, playing stuff and it sounds like something they've already heard or their parents listen to. There's a whole section here where every single bass line they come up with yeah. is a bass line from reggae. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Ken Booth, it's the people in Bob Marley's band. You know, it's familiar, familiar stuff. But the characters overcome this um, this postmodern anxiety, the sense of coming after something. They overcome this fairly early on. And in the music they create, I wanted, to pre- I wanted to present, really quite unironically, I wanted to present something which is utopian. This idea of collective music making, which is so important to so many people, especially young people, the idea of making music together, seems to, seems to attest to a desire to for community, a desire to, to be together, a desire to create something, to order and marshal the chaos of experience. So what the characters in my novel do through their band is precisely to order to create to give form to something otherwise incolate which is their frustration their desire to escape the suburbs what they're doing with their band is giving that desire concrete form and that's i think i think something which far from failing to do they actually achieve so for me these, this band, the band called Nietzsche and the Burbs, which gives the novel its title, this band succeed in their own way. Certainly, I don't want to. I want to give, don't want to give too many spoilers here. <laughs> but certainly, it might not be a project that lasts. But while it lasts, it indicates, it points to something, and perhaps it points towards what we might call—is it too pompous a word—a politics? Is it a pre-politics? Is it? Anyway, I won't go any further. <laughs> but perhaps it points to some idea of collective life, of collective action, which would overcome the individualism which is encouraged in contemporary life, in contemporary suburban life.
2: Fantastic. I think that's a nice hopeful note, perhaps, to um, throw open the questions to you. you, unless you had, did you have a final
0: piece you wanted to read? Well, I'm more happy to have questions. We should have questions. Let's have some questions. Was, um, oh,
1: so Hang up. two seconds.
0: <laughs> so the question is here, do I think Nietzsche was a fool? The original Nietzsche. I think, you know, this idea of foolishness or idiocy is something we can understand in in a positive sense. Nietzsche presented his work as untimely. Nietzsche presented his work as being not of the time in which he lived. And he was acutely aware that his audience did not exist. They weren't his contemporaries. Nietzsche's contemporaries weren't particularly interested in his work. Not initially, at least. So Nietzsche saw himself as writing for an audience that didn't yet exist. For an audience that he conjures up in his philosophy as consisting of what he calls free spirits. These, don't, these free spirits don't exist yet, but they're going to come into being. And one of the interesting things about Nietzsche's work is that he wants to constitute this community. He wants to, um, he wants his work to, to create a particular kind of reader. And that, I think, is an aspect of his, of his foolishness. Or perhaps we should use another word here, his untimeliness. The He's absolute me. fool. Yeah, an absolute mm. <laughs> is there such a thing as an absolute fool? It's an intriguing oh, idea. I mean, yeah, mm. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> gentlemen over here. I think.
2: Across your work, there's like a lot of a sense of like the end of history is like a really overbearing sense. It's like with all of the characters, with even with this one that I have not yet read, the sense of like these unmoored characters in an afterspace. Oh. Like I, I also thought of like. When you were talking about the suburbs and relationships to the endless lawn in uh, Wittgenstein mm. Junior as well, the sense that like even though you say all as all space is like filling up, it's simultaneously being emptied out, mm. and I wonder if you could like pass comment on any of that. No, this,
0: this is a, you know you put it out exactly right here. So if we think in terms of um, te- temporality, think of the end of history. What does the end of history mean? Well, the end of history is a, is a buzzword that floated around in the nineteen nineties. We link it to Francis Fukuyama. Um, and Francis Fukuyama's thesis was that a liberal democracy as we currently find it is the ultimate form of political organisation. Capitalism as we currently find it is really the only economic form that can survive in the present and that will go on. As a result of this, we find what Fukuyama um, pessimistically calls the civilization of the last man. And this, this phrase, the last man, that Fukuyama uses is taken deliberately from Nietzsche's work. It comes from Thus Spoke frustra so when, when we talk about the end of history with Fukuyama, um, we're thinking about what Nietzsche calls the last man, the ultimate man. And the ultimate man, according to Nietzsche, is someone who's very content, very happy, very sedate, very comfortable, very unchallenged, very passionate. Passionless. And what Nietzsche wants to counterpose to the last man, to these figures who appear at the end of history, for whom all the historical questions have been answered, for whom the question of what political life is has been solved, for whom what economics is all about has been answered. What Nietzsche wants to pose to these people is something much more passionate, much more risky, which he links to this idea of overcoming, of overcoming our limits, overcoming what we are, of transgressing our our, um, simple sense of ourselves as economic agents. So what Nietzsche wants to do is to open us to this uh, a, a very, uh, an idea of passionate life, of emotionally rich life, of a life which is questioning, which asks questions about political forms, political structures, which asks questions about economic structures. So that's what Nietzsche, in my novel, and the real Nietzsche wants to point towards. He wants to point towards something which happens, as it were, after the end of history. He wants to contest the idea that history is over. You also mentioned space. Let's think about it in, in, in spatial terms. So we can say that history, according to Fukuyama and others, is at an end in terms of progression of our institutions and so on. But spatiality, um, live spatiality, the way in which we live, is also characterized by a kind of end. The, spa, the, the spatial is, is governed, it's organized, it's managed. I said earlier that what we find in Wokingham is the suburbs lacking term. The suburbs become interminable. The suburbs becoming exponential. The suburbs simply spreading and determining our very idea of what space might be. If you go to Wokingham, what you find is the last countryside disappears. The woods that survive are managed as leisure resources, with trail through the park, with notices. Land that was simply left fallow just left lying there, through which we might have wondered as children, that land has been built upon. So in that sense, we're at the end of space too. So for me then, how do you contest the end of space? Well, cycling is one, is one example here, um, forming a band. How can you create within space, within space as we find it, how can we create temporary autonomous zones? I think that's one of the questions which my characters um, want to ask in, in the novel.
2: And it's global for them, that issue of space. Mm. It's not just the suburbs. It's the Anthropocene. It's the idea that if you climb any mountain, you'll still find a fragment of plastic up there that Mm. says humans was here.
0: Yeah, so the characters talk about the Anthropocene. There's there's an account of a lesson where Mr. Zachary, the poor geography teacher, who the the, the pupils always torment, Mr. Zachary says, you know, we're in the Anthropocene now. This is the age in which uh, human beings directly influence the geological record we're all familiar with this term, it's well known. But my characters say, no, this is the age of the geocene. This is the age of the earth, of the revenge of the earth. Where well, the earth becomes that which cannot be controlled, cannot be marshaled. The earth rebels. And it rebels in the form with which we're familiar in Australia. You know, right now. Um, Australia's burning. I was being interviewed by someone in Sydney yesterday... And there he was, stripped to the waist. He said it's 12 midnight, it's 35 degrees in, in Sydney, it's um, 80% humidity, it's totally filled with smoke. That is the rebellion of the earth. So, our rage is not so much an anthropocene for me, it's the geocene. It's the revenge of that which we thought we could marshal.
1: I, I, I just wondered if I could um, introduce a note of scepticism. Um, because not about the, maybe the the forms of meaning that these characters end up engaging in, cycling and uh, band practice and so on, but rather scepticism about the characters themselves. I mean, one um, really absent feature in the novel for anyone who looks around at teenagers nowadays is none of them is on their phone, Mm. your characters. And I wonder whether that kind of boredom out of which... (laughs) They then enter into cycling and band practice. The boredom that carries them, you know, fatalistically yet again towards ASDA Mm. and so on, which upon which they reflect, you know, very amusingly whether that even exists anymore, um, because they're on their phones. Mm. Your characters are not on their phones.
0: Well, my characters are on WhatsApp. They use WhatsApp. They actually use WhatsApp in a very polite way, and they actually don't use any of these emojis. (laughs) I mean, I don't have a mobile phone. I've no idea about mobile phone, the mobile phone world. Um, so it's a complete mystery to me so I don't have a phone myself so I thought if they're going to use WhatsApp they're going to use it in a way which I might use it in you know. so they actually write these well formed sentences which I'm sure it doesn't reflect contemporary teenage life the question is have I captured contemporary youth have I captured contemporary youth in its um, addiction to the, to the smartphone maybe addiction is too negative a word here you know, perhaps I should say in, in, in the use of the, of the smartphone a smartphone can be used to organise rebellions as well as um, distract us from from important issues, um, you know, I, I leave that up to the readers to decide. It's a feeble answer. I leave that up <laughs> to the readers to decide. When I, when, I when I look... OK, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try again. Um, when I look at a, at a bunch of students in a room, um, and this is maybe just my lecturing, which is so boring, I see students who are not entertained or excited. I see students who are often pretty bored. So I see boredom as something which is really quite real. I see in the faces of students very often a lack of engagement. For me, if I think of the contemporary um, mood among the young, I think of it a diso- dissociation, dissociation. It's a hard word to say. But dissociation, where you don't feel quite real. You, don't, you hover above the world. And this is what I wanted to capture in, in, the, in the teenagers of, of my novel. Thank you. Um, reading your novel, I found it really
2: interesting that lots of the characters, um, they struggle with Nietzsche, sometimes they misunderstand him, like art does, and mm. Nietzsche actively kind of rejects them when he's giving mm. his final presentation. Um, if it's the case that Nietzsche is so relevant now, is it a misunderstood or a misrepresented Nietzsche? He mm. doesn't have the same, which doesn't actually mirror the correct Nietzsche and
0: the correct teachings that you put forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So Nietzsche, as a philosopher, was very suspicious of the idea of leadership. Nietzsche didn't want to be a leader. He didn't want people to simply follow him. What Nietzsche wanted is for people to, to think for themselves in some way, to philosophize for themselves. And just to, just to generalize, to, to move very quickly here, Nietzsche argued that philosophy is not something which is solely abstract. It's to do with our bodies. It's to do with our physiology. It's to do with our, our characters. It's to do with who we are as singular individuals. So the idea for Nietzsche, then, is somehow that you would, that you would follow him to the extent you don't follow him. You would follow him in order to develop, to understand what your body can do, to use a term which we find in, in, um, in, in Spinoza's work. The idea that what you're trying to access here is what it is you can do. Not slavishly imitating Nietzsche, not writing scholarly books about Nietzsche, not, dare I say, writing novels about Nietzsche, <laughs> bringing him into the present. The idea is to render your own, your own body operative and to discover what it is that you might unfold in your singularity. And it's to that extent that Nietzsche might well be understood, possibly, as being relevant now, timely now, in his untimeliness. Um, so uh, part of the, I guess, part of the performative dimension of Nietzsche's work, is use of narrative, is that he uses narrative as a way for him to like philosophize out of the kind of like conceptual nature of philosophy, wrestling his way out of the concepts that he thinks are making life unlivable. And I wanted to ask, I guess, whether you see this like wrestling as something that's common to literature and potentially to music and also, I guess, to collective action. Mm. The idea is how can we make life something bearable, livable? How can we live a livable life? a life we want to live? This is a very philosophical question, or rather philosophers pose this explicitly. But we also find it in the arts in general. So one of the reasons I might be drawn to a particular band, a particular artist, is not just because of their music, but because of the life they seem to embody for me. In this novel, um, disco is a very important thing. So one of my characters in particular called Merv. Merv is very drawn, very moved by the example of a pioneer of disco called David Mancuso. I don't know if you know David Mancuso's work. David Mancuso was a DJ. He's a wonderful kind of DJ. What David Mancuso did was hold loft parties, parties in lofts in in New York back in the 1970s. And what characterised David Mancuso's parties was everyone was welcome in, everyone could come in. There's a very small cover charge. You had black people, Hispanic people, trans people, homosexual people all kinds of people who might not find a world that welcomed them elsewhere. They were welcome in David Mancuso's loft. And David Mancuso understood what he was doing as holding a party, a party that would celebrate life in its richness, life as it, as, it, as it falls outside of conventional channels. And Merv, my character, is very moved by this because for him, disco is a kind of collective. And what he's looking for is the attempt to, 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 to find a template for the livability of life. I think that's one of the reasons why, certainly this might affect my interests. If I'm interested in an artist, a writer, I want to find out about their lives. This month in in this bookshop, London Review of Books bookshop, I was delighted to see earlier, in your front window, my my favourite novelist, Thomas Bernhard. Thomas Bernhard's work is prominently displayed in the window, and for me it's a great joy to see this, because Bernhard has always been a figure who's very important to me, and very neglected, in the English-speaking world. He's a very important figure in continental Europe. I'm always amazed how few people know his work. When I read Bernhard, it's not just about reading lines on a page. I want to find out more about Bernhard himself. In fact, I I, I love Bernhard gossip. I love Bernhard letters, letters to his editors. I love the um, recollections of Bernhard, published by a friend of his. They're the the most wonderful book where Bernhard's friend recollects what it's like to hang out with Bernhard. The point I'm making here is that what we're looking for is the idea of livability, of living a bearable life, of finding a template that would allow us to understand how we might live. And that's what I think the arts provide us with. For me, in that sense, we can talk about the aesthetics, the art is an aesthetic matter. But for me, art is also about ethics, or the ethical, or dwelling, of how we might live on the earth particularly for young people who are so passionately devoted to particular artists. So that's how I'd answer your question a bit obliquely. It's about the livability of life. Um, it's about ethics. That's, that's for me, is what the arts are, are, are about. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for a very eloquent dissertation. Though you don't like to call yourself a philosopher... You remind me of a philosopher who I admired for so many years, and I wonder how you would respond to him today, Wittgenstein, oh, and his passionate mm. quest for the truth, mm. and the design of his life, pursuing nothing but that. It seems to me mm. you're engaged in the same kind
0: of quest. I'm
1: not sure I flatter myself in that way.
0: <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a novel on Wittgenstein. There's a novel I wrote called Wittgenstein, Jr., and in that novel I present Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. um, in, in, for me, in his complexities... Is his richness. And what Wittgenstein, in my novel at least, and Wittgenstein Wittgenstein scholars here might correct me in this, what Wittgenstein tries to do is in some sense to leave philosophy behind. No longer to think about thinking, about thinking, about thinking. What Wittgenstein is looking for is a form of life. And this might, might sound a very romantic way of reading Wittgenstein's work. But for me, Wittgenstein is looking for simplicity. And that's why he retreats to that cottage in Norway. You know, Famously, Wittgenstein spent time on his own thinking about philosophy, but more than that, thinking about life, thinking about who he was. Wittgenstein attempts to do this on his own in a cottage in isolation in rural Norway. And what, for me, Wittgenstein's trying to do is something which, paradoxically, I might call anti-philosophical. He's attempting to use philosophy to, in some way, transcend or leave behind philosophy in the name of exactly this ethics that I've just mentioned, this ethos, this way of dwelling. So Wittgenstein's testimony, for me, is very similar to Nietzsche's. And it's similar um, to the testimony of the philosopher about whose work I'm currently writing. I'm writing a novel based on the life of Simone Weil, if you know her wonderful work. These three philosophers, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Simone Weil, their testimony is not only in their work, but it's in the life they try to live. The life they try to live is how they embody philosophy in life. Thank you.
2: I'm sure there are many more questions, but you'll have to ask them individually to Lars because we have to come to an end. But do buy a book and um, get it signed. Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, thank you all very much for coming. Rush thank forward. you very thank so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.